gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. We are in the dog days of summer. I got back from visiting a friend, staying with friends in Nantucket. It was a great time, lovely time. Not very um, jam-packed with anything. Um, basically just sort of hung around and talked and smoked some cigars and drank some stuff and um, ate some nice meals. And uh, it's good to be back. I'm in kind of a good mood today. Um, I know I'm not supposed to say that because I don't want to like ruin my rep for crushing morosity. Actually, who is more crushingly morose, Jonah Goldberg or John Pedoritz? I'll take my answers off the air. So did a fun panel yesterday at the American Enterprise Institute where uh, it's one of the two main places I hang my hat. One of the three, if you include my home, it was on the life and legacy of Paul Cantor. I knew Paul Cantor a little bit. I did some panels with him. I think we exchanged some emails back in the day, chatted with him a few times, but I, you know, I wouldn't say he was a friend and I wouldn't say I knew him well. And uh, he was a professor at the University of Virginia of English. He was a fairly prominent and important uh, scholar of Shakespeare. Um, one of you know the things he made real contributions to was talking about the politics of Shakespeare. And he was also at the forefront of popularizing serious literary criticism of popular culture. Um, and he helped a great deal in making that sort of intellectually acceptable um, from the right. I listened to some interviews with him to, to prep for it and was reading some stuff. I'm not sure he's the guy who like all by his lonesome changed the right um, on this stuff as, as he and some of his bigger fans sometimes suggest, but I think it's impossible and it would be really unfair or grudging to, to deny him a really important part in all that. It was funny. Um, Adam Kuyper who moderated the panel, we used to be the literary editor at uh, the Stand Weekly Standard and was and published a lot of Cantor's most popular or, or well-known stuff. He brought up all these things I kind of like, I didn't say I forgot about, I just haven't thought about in a long time, about how when I started at National Review, it, it was kind of looked down upon to sort of talk about pop, popular culture seriously. And he reminded me I had forgotten that we actually had t-shirts that said popular culture is filth. Um, I believe that was a line from Derbyshire, uh, John Derbyshire, who um, I don't know what he's doing these days, but um, but we'll just leave that for another time. And it was just funny to sort of think about how, you know, I never really thought about like my role in a lot of that, but it's I was doing a lot of the same stuff Paul Cantor was doing from a more middle brow point of view than, you know, you know what Cantor was doing. But we sort of both believed and took the idea seriously that popular culture was something to take seriously. And I think one of the arguments that, that Cantor made that I think is really important or useful when thinking about this stuff is you really shouldn't judge a mode of popular culture by the medium. I mean, we can get into Marshall McLuhan if you want. Um, you'll have to find me first because I'm not going to do it now, but you know, yeah, the medium is important. I, you know, the, 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 and what I mean by medium for those who don't quite never understood or didn't quite grasp the, the medium is the message McLuhan used Marshall McLuhan would argue that the way we receive, you know, culture and information is as important 
or conveys as much culturally as the message that is being conveyed. I think there's truth to that and there's not truth to that. I mean, like social media, obviously the way it, 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 it shrinks the news cycle and addicts people to sort of ever more rapid gratification for information, I think is a really good example why McLuhan was right. But Cantor's point um, was just simply that, you know, you shouldn't say, oh, well, TV is less than film and film is less than books um, because with this sort of assumption that they're just sort of lesser for art forms and the way you should think about it more seriously is that virtually every mode, you know, uh, medium of art is full of crap. And as, as I learned yesterday, Cantor used to argue, used to say that, you know, popular culture is, I can't, now I'm going to mess up the quote, but it's something along the lines that the, the jewel at the top of a pyramid resting on garbage. And regardless, the point is like, you know, we think books are better than TV, but there are an enormous number of trashy garbage books out there. We just don't hold it against the medium of books, right? Um, you know, go not to start something that's almost died down, but go to Amazon and type in Bigfoot erotica. Those are books, you know, just like the Iliad, um, which I guess was originally a scroll anyway. You know, there are a lot of horrible movies, um, but we don't hold the horrible, you know, weekend at Bernie's shrimp shack um, against, uh, you know, the Godfather or, the work of Sergei Eisenstein or whatever. And um, I'm not sure how well Paul Cantor's work, you know, point here holds up for things like Twitter or Instagram, but I, I don't know. I just, um, it's possible that, you know, I think it probably does apply to things like video games. And so part of the problem with the way, part of the reason why TV was so looked down upon was that a lot of the critics jumped in when the medium was really immature and in its infancy. And this is a point, again, this is a point Paul Cantor makes at great length. If, if he were alive and I were, you know, I were on a panel with him, I might push back against some of it on this point because there was actually was a lot of really great stuff in the golden age of television. And, you know, there was this, there's a show called Omnibus, which no one really remembers, which was really sort of wonderful. The Sid Caesar show had some unbelievably brilliant things. The Twilight Zone, you know, one of the things that Rod Serling was capable of doing was drafting some of the best writers of that generation because um, they like getting paid, you know, and paid for TV work was great. Um, I don't know if it was great, but it was great to get paid at all when you're you know, a young sci-fi writer or, sci you know, or, or short story writer. And I think this is a point. This is a point I made. I went back and I reread one of the places Paul Cantor and I really agreed was I thought that the. Um, that Breaking Bad was probably the best television show ever made. I think that's true. I, I think you can you can disagree and put it somewhere lower in the top five or something like that. If you want to put The Wire or Deadwood or The Sopranos up there. Uh, Cantor's top five was weird. It was we saw this clip yesterday. It was um, Breaking Bad, Sopranos, something. Oh, Deadwood, something other totally defensible and The X-Files which I just think is wrong. I liked the X-Files. I didn't think the X-Files was 
nearly as great as Cantor did. The, and so anyway, the, I think part of the confusion comes when people say, you know, today is a new golden age of television. Um, I think that's a misuse of the phrase. I, I think the last 20 years have probably been the best time ever for good television. I think the sitcom is sort of back on its heels these days because you're not allowed to tell funny jokes. But uh, the, you know, for TV drama and that kind of thing, I, I think it's probably one of the best times. It, it is the best time ever. And I think part of it is because um, part of it is the way we, we consume, right? When you stream, you really can turn each episode of a TV show into a chapter of a long form novel, in effect, right? A tele television novel. Um, one of the reasons why, like, there were so few two-parters for Rockford Files or Magnum PI or any of those kinds of things back in the day is when you just had the three major channels and a couple local channels on broadcast television, and you didn't have DVRs and you didn't have VHS or VCRs. Um, and you certainly didn't have Netflix and that kind of thing. You had to catch the show, you know, it was appointment television, you know, it was appointment viewing. You had to see it or you had to wait till the summer for a rerun and then hope you caught it then. And um, so each episode sort of had to be self-contained unless you were doing, you know, like Roots, which was like, or the Holocaust, you know, one of these mini series where the entire country um, tunes in every night. Right. But with the rise of the VCR and then with the DVR and then with streaming and stuff, the only reason you would miss an episode is because you chose not to watch it and you gave up on the show. And so that really gave you the ability, it gives you the ability to sort of do character development in ways that you can't in a lot of ways with movies, right? All of a sudden movies become the limited product um, because you have to cram everything in there between 90 and, you know, 130 minutes. And, um, but TV shows, you can develop themes, plots, characters over the, you know, a, not just one season, but multiple seasons. And I think, I think Cantor was right that the, the, that the X-Files and NYPD Blue and, um, and some others were pioneers in this um, because they sort of had, you know, like with the X-Files, you had the monster of the week kind of stuff, but you also had longer term plot devices and, and plot lines being developed episodically uh, all along the, the run of the season. And, and I think that's one of the things that has allowed TV to break out. And it's one of the reasons why I argue that Breaking Bad was the best because um, over the course of all of its seasons, it had, it knew where it was going in terms of uh, a beginning, middle and end. And it, and it stuck the landing. And I know there are people who don't like the, the ending of Breaking Bad. And, you know, I'm open to arguments about how you could have done it better but it didn't feel slapdashed it didn't feel it didn't feel rushed it didn't feel ill-considered it was foreshadowed long in advance um and it gave the the whole show particularly with the sort of artistic stuff these weird montages in the beginning of every show that were were for visual foreshadowing for stuff that it wouldn't come for three or four episodes sometimes um was extremely literary and while the, i think the wire was great i'm willing to argue about the wire the last season was kind of garbage it also was kind of didn't didactic towards the end um sort of agit proppy but 
but the wire was great. I just think that like the wire was more like, you know, Dickensian literature in the sense that it was intended to illuminate, you know, the, as they put it in the fifth season of, of the wire, the Dickensian aspect of, of urban America. But, you know, Dickens, he, he cranked out those chapters as serials and newspapers. And I don't, I'm not enough of a Dickens expert to tell you that they all hung together perfectly. Um, but you kind of got the sense that they just, they didn't know how to really end the wire. Um, and it was also sort of a victim of, of the changing, like a lot of shows, I think even more so like law and order. When I first started watching law and order, um, as in like when it first aired, um, back in the Pleistocene era, law and order was really ripped from the headlines. I mean, like the stories were stuff that if you were, particularly if you were a New Yorker, you got immediately what the call outs were to, you know, stories that you read about in the New York post, um, you know, Bernie Gates kind of stories or Tawana Brawley kind of stories, that kind of stuff. It and NYPD blue and a lot of these shows from the nineties that were conceived in or the late eighties, they were conceived when violent crime was through the roof and got so popular that they lasted until the crime wave basically disappeared. All of a sudden, um, sort of kind of struggled with some of the foundational assumptions of the shows. Um, anyway, so I'm sorry, I have all this in my head because we talked, we did this whole panel about popular culture. The first panel was all about Cantor's Shakespeare stuff, which I am woefully unqualified to speak to. Um, I'm a, I like Shakespeare, but I don't, people have said I should have a guest come on and talk about Shakespeare. And there are a couple of people I'd like to have on to talk about Shakespeare, but um, we'd have to sort of set up some ground rules insofar as I think that, well, I know there are some people in the listenership who really know their Shakespeare. I think most people are kind of like me. They've seen a good deal of Shakespeare. They've read Shakespeare in high school, maybe a little bit in college. They've seen some of the Shakespeare adaptations, that kind of stuff, but they don't live and breathe Shakespeare and they don't get the references the way um, people who, who are just drenched in it. And I, I just worry about how to do that kind of podcast. Um, it is amazing. I don't have it in front of me, but if you can just Google words and phrases, well, I'll do it right now. All right. So this is just the first one that came up. It's from dictionary.com. And these are just some, I mean, there's so many, right? There's green eyed monster in a pickle. Love is blind. Salad days. Wear my heart on my sleeve. There's the rub. Cruel to be kind. Wild goose chase. These are all invented by Shakespeare. Like, like no one said them before. Um, this is a list from the comprehensive etymological dictionary of the English language. This is a list of words allegedly created by Shakespeare. Now I'm open to the possibility that like he heard them someplace else or read them someplace else. And the record of that doesn't survive, but you know, etymologists are good at this kind of thing. So the, the assumption is, is that most of these words, my assumption is most of these words are in fact largely created by Shakespeare. Academe, arouse, beached, barefaced, caked, compromise, dawn, dwindle, exposure, frugal, gust, impartial, laughable, madcap, monumental, obscene, panders, rant, skim milk, <laughs> skim milk, 
tranquil, worthless, zany, undress, submerge, remorseless, pedant, obsequiously, moonbeam, majestic, lovely, invulnerable, hint, generous, eyeball, epileptic, deafening, courtship, cater, blushing, besmirch, accused, assassination, addiction, backing, birthplace, bet, champion, countless, discontent, equivocal, fashionable, gloomy, hobnob, jaded, lower, marketable, mountaineer, ode, premeditated, savagery, summit, unreal, gnarled, grovel, varied, swagger, scuffle, puking, Olympian, negotiate, metamorphize, luggage, label, hurried, gossip, fixture, elbow, disheartened, critic, circumstantial, bump, advertising, amazement, bedroom, bloodstained, buzzer, cold-blooded, dauntless, drugged, excitement, flawed, green-eyed, impede, lackluster, lustrous, mimic, noiseless, outbreak, radiance, secure, torture, vaulting. Again, I just Googled this thing. It's the first thing to come up that words uh, Shakespeare invented. When you click on it, it gives you this downloadable chart thing. So if, if it's wrong, I mean, I find that so shocking. Every time I look up this things invented by Shakespeare thing, I find it so shocking that I'm always a little skeptical. And I am sure if we could get some etymologist in here, uh, not an entomologist, because this has nothing to do with bugs. But if we had an etymologist in here, um, he would say, yeah, you know, he invented some of these, but others of these were sort of, he just sort of, you know, borrowed from this or tweaked that or um, translated from French or whatever. I, I, I honestly, I don't know. But it's even if you discount by like 90 percent, it's pretty freaking impressive. Um, without even getting into all the iambic pentameter and and rhyming, which is hard. Anyway, I could do more pop culture stuff, but I'm going to, I think I'm going to do some, do it like a standalone podcast on some of this stuff with somebody um, because I got to put a bunch of episodes in the can before I uh, leave the country at the end of the month. So they need to be sort of standalone. And this seems like one of those things, you know, the pop culture stuff seems to be one of those things. I will say that just the last thing about Paul Cantor, who I understand some of you may not have heard of. I did not know until yesterday that he was a, both a Straussian and a Von Miesian, which like there are probably seven of you listening to this right now who are stunned um, to learn that. Like, like I could see Tevi Troy, doing dishes in the kitchen and I say, Hey, did you know that Paul Cantor was a Von Miesian and a Straussian? And he'd be like gasp and turn the water off at the sink and turn around and be like, what? But for the rest of you, that's just weird. Okay. That's not a thing. And we can talk about that more another time too. Okay. So uh, let's do some punditry where to go. White house cocaine. Like if this was the wire, uh, you, you know that they would be like yelling on the streets of Baltimore already, you know, uh, White House library or situation room or wherever the Coke is supposed to have come from by now. And that's the thing. So I have not followed this too closely, um, but I think they've changed the location or they changed their story of the location of where this small bag of cocaine was found in the white house like three times now, at least twice. It's I, I know everyone out there is it's obvious. I mean, including Trump, you know, it's obviously, it's obviously Hunter's cocaine, right? Um, I don't know. 
maybe it's Hunter's cocaine. Um, like if I were Hunter, I would be, even though I know he's an addict and all of these things, I'd be more circumspect about my use of, uh, Bolivian marching powder. And I'm not sure I would use it there, you know, near again, by, by this time tomorrow, by the time you're listening to this, the location of where the cocaine was found, you know, could turn out to be the, the, the dog bed or something like that. So who knows? But if it's not Hunter's cocaine, then the White House and the Secret Service really need to figure out whose it is for political reasons. I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I think it's fine to be freaking out about this for, for national security reasons. You know, I said on Twitter the other day, if this were a small bag of anthrax, I don't feel like we would be getting all of these we may never know vibes, right? I mean, and a lot of people who, you know, have these knee-jerk defenses of, of, of Biden and the White House or knee-jerk defenses of cocaine, um, there, there are those people out there, believe me. Um, you know, we're like, oh, you, you think cocaine is as bad as anthrax or blah, blah, blah. No, it's not a weapon of mass destruction. Although, I don't know, it's entirely possible that cocaine has killed more people than weaponized anthrax. I'm, I'm open to that question. But my only point was, is if, if they found anthrax, they would treat it like a really grave threat. All of those internal White House security cameras and all that kind of stuff um, would be, you know, they'd be going ever, over every frame of it. And maybe, maybe they are, um, Unless it is Hunter's cocaine, in which case the political incentive to actually get an answer uh, shrinks dramatically. And so I think the whole thing is sort of fascinating. I don't really quite know what to make of it yet. I will say that um, it really does lend itself to all sorts of Hollywood scenarios, which I am not saying are real scenarios. You know, my, my, uh, my friend Bob Driscoll, uh, he tweeted that, you know, this is sort of the Hollywood, you know, the Hollywood version of this would be like they they're framing Kamala, Kamala Harris so that they can push her off the ticket, get Newsom on the ticket. And then Biden can like retire before or after the election so that Newsom becomes president. Bob's not endorsing that theory. He just was making a joke. Personally, I think like the house of cards scenarios are, kind of funny like again if it were a movie script there would be or a you know like a netflix series you know it would be um i don't know like they would have some junior white house aide in charge of um low flush toilets and diversity equity and inclusion in for the president's fitness council come in and say, Hey Bob, do you like working here? That's great. You know, but we think you have a great, really great future. Here's what we're going to need you to do. We're going to need you to cop to this white bag. And, and then like you could see the house of cards version being like, if you do this, we'll get your dad out of jail, uh, get him a pardon, whatever, or, you know, maybe we'll see to it that you're on the board of Burisma or, you know, one of a thousand different things. Um, if it were hunters, if it's not hunters, 
you know, then the only imperative is to clear Hunter's name because if, if they prove or even leave as an open question that, that, uh, Hunter is, is doing white lines in the white house, you know, um, that's just really, really not good politics. Hey, so I want to thank all the people who listened. It doesn't seem like a lot did, and I don't blame you. It was 4th of July. Um, I, I, I admitted at the front of it that it was a off the cuff, well, largely off the cuff. I spent like 20 minutes just sort of putting together some quick notes thing about the 4th of July and Independence Day in America and why it's awesome. And um, the feedback has been really heartening and great. And I'm glad I did it. And I'm glad you guys liked it. It just, it fills me with this sort of, oh, damn it. I should have taken it more seriously and been more comprehensive kind of feeling because you think about all the things um, you know, I left out and, um, about the true radicalism of, of the American founding and why it really was, it was the, it wasn't the birth of the modern. It was the point of, of, of no return for modernity in this. I shouldn't say no return, right? It contradicts a lot of things I say and believe it was where, um, modernity became much more difficult to reverse. And, um, having the most, you know, at the time wasn't the most powerful nation, but within a century, it was certainly the most secure nation and on its way to becoming just sort of a a global giant, um, economically, morally, politically, philosophically to have that kind of country, you know, as my old boss would call it the first universal nation, um, uh, committed to fundamental sort of liberal principles made it very difficult to, to truly reverse liberalism everywhere. Um, and again, I mean sort of American style, classical liberalism that a lot of conservatism is about conserving. And, um, it's funny. It's like one of the things, one of the reasons why this came to, comes to mind is that yesterday on this, uh, panel at AI, um, the last we ran long, we had a lot of questions. We had all these kids from the Hertog fellows program and a similar program out of the Hudson Institute. And, um, and I think a lot of AI interns and RAs and that kind of stuff, it was just, a, it was a packed room and a bunch of smart kids. It was kind of funny to be talking about TV shows that for some of them seem like as old as like, I love Lucy or Banachek seemed to me, um, when I was at their age, but, um, we talked a lot about the Godfather and, um, um, which Cantor thought was probably Godfather one and two were probably the greatest, um, films ever made. I think you can say they're the, in the top five and you sort of still make the same point. But anyway, we talked about that. And, uh, this young lady from, uh, University of Austin, that new sort of great books thing. She was kind of snarky and I'm sure she's a very smart, earnest young lady. Um, but she said, look, I just, you know, I have sort of have a statement and I'd like you to respond. And she says that, you know, I, I think the whole idea of studying pop culture is a mistake. You know, look at the Godfather, you know, these are just, these are criminals we have nothing serious to learn from criminals or something. I'm paraphrasing. Um, and that's why, you know, and comparing it to Macbeth is, 
uh, or King Lear. We were talking about how King Lear and Succession are similar too. So it was all part of that same thing. You know, comparing to Shakespeare is, is a waste of time and you really can only learn from reading the great books. So Chris, uh, Christopher Scalia, a colleague of mine at AEI, went first in answering and he gave a very nice, very sober, serious response to it where he kind of pushed back on some of it. And then uh, this other guy um, who I'd not met until yesterday, um, but um, I really liked and enjoyed listening to. Um, I want to get his name right. Was it Michael Moses? Um, he's a professor at Chapman and he was a close colleague of, of Cantor's and a student of, of Harvey Mansfield. Yeah. Michael Moses. And he pushed back in another way. I mean, I just don't want to mischaracterize their arguments, but they're all sort of sober and reflective. And then I was like, oh, yeah, let me just flip that even deeper. You know, where do you, th you know, when you say we have nothing to learn from, you know, from, from criminals, um, you know, where do you think the power from power of Macbeth and all of these, you know, pre-modern lords and ladies and, and aristocrats and nobles and kings came from? They were all warlords, right? The original aristocrats in Europe, the original nobility, these were all former warlords um, or, or warriors who were rewarded for slaughtering people with, with land and power and privilege. And, um, the idea that understanding laws and morality from what reading about how they behaved, um, uh, makes a lot more sense than, than studying anything else is sort of silly. The law was a lagging indicator, um, real law, rule of law, not personal law, not arbitrary power, but the actual idea that no one is above the law, um, or even that the law mattered beyond the will of the most powerful people who ruled by the point of a sword or by the tip of an army. Um, and we're, you know, we can go back to sort of the, 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 you know, stationary bandit stuff about where, you know, the first Kings come from, uh, you know, the, the divine right of Kings stuff. It's not, I, I hope I'm not offending anybody, but the divine right of Kings stuff was pretextual, and came much later than the existence of the actual Kings. And you can go through the history of basically any monarchy or, or, or Imperium or, you know, Shogunate or whatever. And I guarantee you the, the seizing power by conquest comes first and then coming up with a narrative of legitimacy, whether it's theological or ancestral or otherwise um, comes second. So anyway, my, the point was partly just because I, I, I didn't like the snootiness of the question. I love great book, but just be clear. I love great books programs. I think they're wonderful. Some of my better friends went to them. Um, you know, I love listening to Tim Carney, uh, my colleague at AI talk at length about how awesome St. John's was. And I always laugh whenever he proves the Pythagorean theorem on a cocktail napkin, um, which is what he, one of the things he learned going to St. John's. But there is a sort of understandable as a human thing, snootiness to people who, who do those kinds of programs because they have to justify the, the, the impressive choice that they made. And um, anyway, the reason I bring it up here is that one of the things that the American founding 
did was take these ideas, yes, from Locke and, and even Hobbes and, and, um, um, and antiquity and from the philosophes and all these places and actually empirically, practically apply them as an actual modus vivendi for a society in a way that didn't seem inauthentic or inorganic. And that is just shockingly new in human history. I think I said this on the 4th of July thing, you know, that most nations are created by history. This is what Margaret Thatcher supposedly said. Most nations are created by history, but America was created by philosophy. And the decision to just, just not even muck with titles of nobility, um, not even play games with, with monarchy. You know, the fact that George Washington, you know, probably could have been King if he wanted to be, he certainly could have been president for life if he wanted to be chose not to because he wanted to establish a Republic that outlived him. There's basically, anyway, I just been thinking all week about the things like that, that I didn't get into, um, on that 4th of July thing. And, um, you know, maybe next year I'll do a more polished thing. Oh, speaking of these sorts of issues though. So Hillary Clinton tweeted, tweeted this ridiculous thing that I, that really just bothered me tweeting out some vanity fair piece that I have no desire to read just from the description and the Twitter thing. But she tweeted, I still feel strongly that the Supreme court needs to stand on the side of the American people, not on the side of corporations and the wealthy. And then the, just the tease for the vanity fair piece is America has a Supreme court problem. Hillary Clinton tried warning us. Now, what do you do with a rogue court? Every single thing about this just infuriates me. First of all, I don't care what Hillary Clinton warned us about before in part because we don't have a rogue court. You know, I know, I know I have a lot of left to center listeners out there. This is just one of these things that I'm going to just stick to my right wingedness on. Um, I think the Supreme court should be conservative. Um, I don't mean that in the sense that it should support the Republican party. I mean that in a, in a deeper and more serious way, I think the Supreme court should be originalist, strict constructionist, textualist, whatever label you want to put on it. And I don't think it should, um, uh, side as she puts it side with the American people, not on the side of corporations and the wealthy. I think the Supreme court, should stand on the side of the law and the constitution. That's I text. I tweeted at her. I said, I still feel strongly that the Supreme court should stand on the side of the constitution and the law, but I didn't go to Yale law school like you did. I, I simply have never understood the argument for the Supreme court, not being as faithful as possible, given that there are reasonable differences about how to read the constitution and precedent and all of that. But as a general proposition, the idea that the Supreme Court shouldn't be faithful to the, the text, the original understanding of the Constitution as written just seems to me so incandescently obvious. And I have never once read a halfway persuasive argument for anything else. Um, 
I've read interesting things, you know, from the critical legal people and all that kind of stuff about how it's impossible to do that. And I reject that, but at least I found that kind of stuff interesting. But if you don't think the constitution has a meaning, if you don't think that, that, that you can get closer to the meaning of what it says by actually, if you, if you don't, if you don't think a close reading of it matters because a close reading of it doesn't give you any more information about what it means than a, a glancing reading, then you really just, or, or, or no reading at all, then you really just don't believe in the constitution. Um, I mean, you might believe in the principles vaguely espoused, but usually the people who have this sort of, you know, pragmatic living constitution kind of approach to, um, you know, po- was it legal positivism, right? People who usually have those kinds of approaches to the constitution adopt those sort of approaches so that they can move beyond the clear principles to these softer, weirder principles. Um, you know, and, and as I told a bunch of people who were coming after me yesterday, you know, just read the standard Supreme court oath and you'll see what I'm getting at. Right. Um, hold on. Here it is. The Supreme court justices actually have to take two oaths. The first is, uh, in a, in accordance with article six, all federal officials must take an oath in support of the constitution. And this one just says the senators and representatives before mentioned, and the members of the several state legislatures and all executives and judicial authors, both of the United States and of the several states shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this constitution, but no religious test shall be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the constitution, under the United States. I'm sorry. So that's the, that's the provision of the constitution saying what you should, uh, that everyone needs to take the oath. And this is from the Supreme court website. It says, and then they say the constitution does not provide the wording for this oath, leaving that to the determination of Congress from 1789 till until 1860, 1861. This oath was, I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support the constitution of the United States. Then things got Gattawampus during, you know, the 1860s for obvious reasons. Um, and now this is the oath that you take since 1860, essentially, or since 1865, I guess. I state your name, do solemnly swear or affirm that I will administer justice without respect to persons and do equal right to the poor and to the rich and that I will faithfully and impartially discharge and perform all the duties incumbent upon me as blank under the constitution. I will administer justice without respect to persons and do equal right to the poor and to the rich. See, this is the thing that I think that drives me most crazy about critics of the Supreme court. They make it sound like it's the job of a justice. And I I think we've been taught this. This is one of these things that activists really believe that it's the job of a justice to get onto the Supreme court and figure out ways to help the poor. No, as a perfectly fine point of view to have to say, that's why you become president. That's why you become a congressman. That's why you become a senator or a mayor or a social worker or a thousand other things. It is not the reason why you become a Supreme Court justice. The reason you become a Supreme Court justice is to follow the frickin' law. And um, the idea that somehow, because in some cosmic sense, it's unfair for a rich person to win a case against a poor person bothers me not one whit. Right? I think that the Supreme court, it should not be in the business of making this a better country 
by and large, or let me put it a different way. I think the best way for the Supreme Court to make this a better country is to simply follow the law and constitution and let the other branches of government do the stuff like help the poor, right? And if something is happening to poor people that is unjust, right, that is actually a violation of law or constitutional principle, then by all means, the Supreme Court should get rid of it. But this idea that the court is this sort of activist backstop for social reform and social amelioration and that kind of thing, I think is incredibly pernicious and dangerous for a democracy and, um, and is, is just so saturated in, and, and soaked in into the rhetoric of, bit of, of almost the entirety of the left and the Democratic Party. And increasingly, we're seeing it now seep into a lot of the nonsense on, on the right as well. And I mentioned, you know, the other day in the 4th of July episode, I paraphrased that thing from Herbert Crowley about what Lady Justice would look like. And a couple of people were like, um, they emailed me and said they, they didn't get it or they'd like to see it. And so let me just, um, this is from my underrated second book. And for those of you who didn't listen to the 40, the, the 4th of July one, Lady Justice, the one that's on all the statues in front of courthouses or on emblems and that kind of thing. And, and I, I think on like the Justice Department seal is Lady Justice is blind, right? She's got a blindfold on. The reason she has a blindfold on is that she won't play favorites, right? This is one of the reasons why judges wear black robes and sit on a bench above everybody else. It is to sort of signify that they are impartial and above the fray and neutral and they're not playing favorites and they're not taking sides. And Lady Justice is just supposed to weigh the facts and the arguments on the scales and not tilt them in favor of anyone based upon their victim status or their nobility or a thousand other things. And this is a principle that I think, I mean, that everyone kind of understands when it comes to umpires, right? And in fact, <laughs> umpires wear black. Uh, so they don't seem like they're wearing a uniform for one team or the other. It's a pretty good metaphor in there. Um, but we think that somehow it's sort of the job of judges to, to you know, what, what is it the reformed Jews like to say, tikkun alam, repair the world. Um, I think it's, um, it's deeply sinister. Anyway, so this is, so Herbert Crowley, for those of you who don't know or don't remember or don't care, um, founder of the New Republic or co-founder of the New Republic, author of The Promise of American Life, really, he's the guy whose influence on Teddy Roosevelt made Teddy Roosevelt into a progressive um, or into a, like a real progressive, leading light of the New Republic for the first, I guess, 20 years of its existence, um, born into Auguste Comte's religion of humanity, which we don't need to get into here. Um, and, uh, basically the, the, the central intellectual force of progressivism in the sort of, uh, from the Wilson era through to, um, the beginning of the 1930s. Um, he ended up dying some, some weird stuff, breathing exercises gone wrong, whatever, cause he got into mysticism, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so here he is um, explaining what Lady Justice should know or what Lady Justice, instead of the scales that equally balance things and the blindfold, 
Lady Justice in the progressive era, now that we have the benefit of all these new scientific insights and all these scientific new understandings of things and disinterested public servants who can figure out the right policies with granularity and without respect to the passions of the people, but just be these sort of like, you know, ninjas for, for reform and social justice. Um, this is what Herbert Crowley says uh, Lady Justice should look like. Okay, he writes... In the past, common law justice has been appropriately symbolized as a statuesque lady with a bandage over her eyes and a scale in her fair hands. The figurative representation of social justice would be a different kind of woman equipped with a different collection of instruments. Instead of having her eyes blindfolded, she would wear perched upon her nose a most searching and forbidding pair of spectacles, one which combined the vision of a microscope a telescope, and a photographic camera. Instead of holding scales in her hands, she might perhaps be sir, might perhaps be figured as possessing a much more homely and serviceable set of tools. She would have a hoe with which to cultivate the social garden, a watering part with which to refresh it, a barometer with which to measure the pressure of the social air, and the indispensable typewriter and filing cabinet, which with which to record the behavior of society. Having within her the heart of a mother and the passion for taking sides, she has disliked the inhuman and mechanical task of holding a balance between verbal weights and measures. That's what the problem with social justice, right? Social justice is about taking sides. It's about, about picking winners and losers, playing favorites. And when I hear Hillary Clinton talking about how the Supreme Court should side with the American people to the extent I even know what that actually means in a serious way. I think it is hot garbage. I also think the stuff from Adrian Vermeule and those guys, which is basically just the right wing version of the same thing, is hot garbage. And I wrote a column about this. I know it's a broken record for me, but like one of the reasons why our politics suck is because we have the institutions that are supposed to do politics not doing politics and the institutions that aren't supposed to do politics doing politics like the Supreme court should not be the center of American politics. Congress should be the center of American politics, which is why it's article one, right? That's why it's Congress first. It's not co-equal branches. They are not co-equal branches. And, but when Congress asks the court or the presidency to do its job for it, it distorts and confuses all of our politics downstream. And so the Supreme Court, by being conservative and saying, yeah, these and, and including overturning these precedents, because I think the, the original precedents, those were the social engineering ones, right? Like this is this thing, you know, that, that Charlie Cook keeps hammering about, about how you can't call what the Supreme Court has been doing a power grab when it's actually taking away power from itself and giving it to the institutions where it belongs. Um, you know, Roe v. Wade took power from legislatures and the executive branch and aggrandized to itself the ability to set regulatory policy in broad brushstrokes for the entire country on abortion. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, there's no justification for this in the text or in the history of the of the law. And so we're going to undo that and give this power back to state legislatures. It didn't say abortion is banned. It didn't say abortion should be banned at six weeks or eight weeks or 10 weeks or 15 weeks or 20 weeks. It said, you guys figure that out. 
And you can think that's wrong. I understand there's a, there's a colorable argument for, you know, you know, again, I have my disagreements with it, but there's an argument for a one size fits all federal policy on abortion. There is an argument for the Supreme Court just saying, you know, let's do this thing. And again, I disagree with it, but I, I, I had this conversation enough times that I acknowledge that there are intellectually and morally defensible positions um, on the other on the sides I don't take. But you can't say that the Supreme Court was grabbing power for itself. I don't think I think the Supreme Court has maximum power on the things it should have power to do and zero power on anything else. And the problem with our politics is that we've just so many people, huge chunks on the left, but increasingly on the right, think staying in your lane, procedural arguments for what certain institutions do or can't do are stupid and that they argue that we should just take the, you know, do politics as the crow flies, as Michael Oakeshott might call it, and just take the shortest route towards the things that we want, regardless of whether or not institutions or government mechanisms were intended to be used that way. And so I, I despise Biden's attempt to like claim that the heroes act justified, um, forgiving student debt. And I got into a little thing. I like this guy, Ro Khanna. He's a congressman from uh, Silicon Valley. I am. I've chatted with him quite a few times, basically on in green rooms or on set and that kind of stuff. I think he's smart. I think he's sincere. Um, I think he's wildly wrong about a bunch of things, but he last Sunday was on one of the Sunday shows talking about how, what the Supreme court did was radical and outrageous with regard to student loans because a plain reading of the heroes act says that Congress or the white house has the authority to cancel all of this student debt. And I dinged him for it on Twitter. And he came back at me saying, look, he got a, you know, Biden got a, you know, a in-house ruling from his lawyers or the department of education saying that he had this power. And I just, Again, I like the guy and he's clearly very smart. I don't know if he doesn't get the conservative argument or he's just playing politics, but I think Tana's argument is just ridiculous. The idea that it's a Biden first says that he doesn't think he can do this. Nancy Pelosi, you know, the head of the house of representatives at the time says Biden can't do this. This loan forgiveness stuff doesn't have the power. And then political pressure from um, basically a very online left says you have to do this. And here are some pretextual made up reasons why you have the power to do it. Um, you know, Elizabeth Warren got some left wing lawyers to write some ridiculous memo saying, here's how you can do it. it totally. You can do it. Um, you know, again, treating the law like it's a set of magical incanta- incantations. And if you just get the right ones in the right order, it empowers you to do whatever you want. And Biden didn't cave to that, but then he went and had, he basically asked lawyers at the department of education and, uh, and the white house counsel's office, or maybe it was the off OL, OLC at justice. I can't remember. And said, you know, come tell me what I can do. And wink, wink, you know, they came up with a pretextual arguments that Larry tribe, you know, kind of phoned into him anyway, saying, Oh, it turns out you can do this. Look at this passage in the heroes act 
which was passed after 9-11, intended for, you know, families of service members affected by 9-11 and, and, and mobilization um, and the war on terror stuff. Um, and if you, if you hold it under the right light and squint, it doesn't quite say you can't do this now because of a pandemic that you've already declared over. But if we all just agree to read it that way, yes, you have the power. And Kana now takes that as the reasonable legal interpretation of the Heroes Act and thinks that the majority of justices on the Supreme Court aren't, aren't just merely less qualified to read the law accurately and correctly, um, but they are illegitimate um, and arrogating power and activist for disagreeing with a bunch of hack lawyers inside of Biden's own administration. I don't mean to say that they're bad lawyers. And when I call them hacks, I just mean like when you say, give me a pretext to do something that I need to do politically to a bunch of lawyers in house, lawyers are problem solvers and they're going to come up with the best argument possible. And what the left did was just take those arguments mischaracterize them in some cases, um, which, you know, which were, I remember the OLC one being like really equivocal where it was like, if you assume this and you take for granted that and you stipulate this other thing, then yeah, it's an argument that you could do some of these things maybe. And the way the left responded was, see, we now have, you know, we have, we have pulled the legal sword from the stone and we can do now, the king can do whatever it wants. It's just garbage. And so if you want, this is how I put it in my LA Times column, right? Which was, it's up on the dispatch. If you want to, if you want to forgive student debt, I will disagree with you. I think it's a terrible, terrible friggin' idea, right? It is, it is regressive. It rewards people who are going to have some of the best options and opportunities to pay off debt. Um, who, you know, that's the reason they went to college in the first place. A lot of, you know, go read Beth Acker's, uh, you know, go listen to the Beth Acker's episode on, on, on here where we talked about this stuff. A lot of student debt is held by grad students. I don't see why they deserve some sort of, you know, was it post post hoc ex ante, whatever you're supposed to call it, uh, subsidy for picking bad graduate degrees. Um, I don't see why people who choose college degrees that are going to be very difficult given where salaries are to pay off, why they deserve a subsidy either. But that's a, you know, that's a downstream, more complicated argument. Um, you would do much more good as, as, as Beth Ackers points out, there are some like targeted student loan forgiveness things you could do. Like a lot of the people who have the most trouble making rent um, and making student loan payments Oh, very little in student loan money. And it's usually for community colleges. That kind of targeted thing is a matter of public policy. I could get around, even though in principle, I still think there's moral hazard there. Um, but this sort of blanket just giveaway to a major political constituency of the Democratic Party, I just find profoundly offensive and lawless. Um, but if you want to do it as policy, you're free to do things that, you know, you're you can do wrong things in this country legally. You just got to do it with Congress. You just have to have, you have to pass a law. Congress could forgive the student loan debt of every left-handed person in America. If they write the law correctly, 
Um, although I'll ask Sarah about that. Maybe that's invidious discrimination against right-handed people. I don't know. But you can, Congress has <laughs> really wide power to do things if it writes, if it actually passes laws. And, um, and this is sort of my point about the dysfunction of our politics. Because we, we, leave, we, we leave these questions to essentially executive orders and then dare the Supreme Court to overturn or invalidate uh, lawless, lawless but popular executive orders, um, leaving Congress out of all of this, the, the right place to have political arguments, serious, I mean, when I say political arguments, I don't mean illegitimate or trivial arguments. I mean, like the central arguments about what it means to live in America in the 21st century and where our priorities should be and what we should be spending our money on and what we should be subsidizing and what we should be penalizing and, you know, taxes and all of that kind of stuff. These are really important fundamental questions. And the, the reason we have Congress is that that's where those questions are supposed to be debated and discussed and, and, and policies and principles discovered through adversary here, adversarial hearings and all that. And so anyway, I, I know I went along on that part. I just, I see some folks who are in the sort of anti-Trump camp who are more sort of, uh, we gotta, we gotta come to the aid of Democrats in their approach to stopping Trump and all that kind of stuff. And then I see, and I see them buying into, uh, left-wing arguments for the Supreme court, uh, or left-wing arguments for liberal activism from the Supreme court. Um, and then I see, you know, the Adrian Vermeule, Patrick Deneen types making arguments for um, the exact same kind of right-wing activism from the Supreme Court. And this is just one of these things I just reject at all. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, you want to call me a both-sider or, or, or a curmudgeon or a remnant guy or a reactionary. I don't care what the labels are. Supreme Court should be very assertive about the things it has the prerogatives to be assertive about in terms of upholding the constitution. And then it should just be fricking silent about pretty much everything else. And that would be, that would do more to restore the health of American politics than, um, I don't want to say than getting rid of primaries, but it would be, it would be way up there and it's doable. And that's why, Look, I don't like the way that Donald Trump got some of these justices on the court. I was very nervous about the, the, the Barrett appointment. Um, um, I wish all that stuff had gone differently, but I agree for the most part with this court and, um, and with these major decisions and, um, and I don't do it because it's good for Republicans because I'm disgusted by a lot of the stuff that goes on with the Republican party. I do it because I'm a conservative and because I'm a constitutionalist and, um, and even if it makes Donald Trump look good to take credit for what these guys are doing, um, that's not an argument for changing my position. So, uh, if I sound like I'm subtweeting or, or not laying out exactly some of the people that I'm referring to, that's, that's only because I am. Okay. So we've, I've kind of done my time here. Um, I got to write a G file. I don't know exactly what that's going to be on. I apologize for only having one episode this week. We're going to try, as I was saying earlier, to get a bunch of shows in the can. It's just the next 10 days or so just crazy, crazy busy for me. Um, and then I go to Europe 
we're going to do this thing. Um, part of what we're going for. So I have a relative who's getting married in London, but we're going to go a week earlier. Um, I don't know if I've told you guys about this, but my, my, I know I told you, but my wife's working on a book about her dad. And, um, you guys have heard me talk about my dad, about my father-in-law a bunch, but my wife found this trail through the Alps that her dad used to make it into the West. And apparently it's a very famous trail in the Alps in, in sort of Austria, Italy, um, border that, uh, the Jews trying to escape the Holocaust used first and then in the, you know, in the early 30s, I mean, that's right, early 40s, you know, during the war. And then in like 47 to 48, 49, um, people trying to escape communism used the same trail. And apparently it's a popular thing to hike. So it was actually my idea to say, hey, let's just let's hike it. Um, it now turns out that I may have to like because we've got other family who are coming I may get voluntold to uh, be the one who actually drives the car and all the luggage across the border to meet everyone on the other side. Um, it's kind of funny. It's like I have been kind of looking forward to the hike, but also kind of dreading it. I'm so out of shape, pandemic, startup, brown liquor, all these kinds of things. And I'm in the process of trying to get healthy and thinking about this hike. I was getting kind of nervous because it's like an eight hour thing in the Alps. And on the one hand, like old ladies carrying all their belongings made, you know, did this. Um, and I think it was Steve Hayes who pointed out, he's like, yeah, but they were hiking for their lives. Um, you know, <laughs> they might be, uh, they might've been more positively motivated than, than, than you. And, um, so anyway, I don't know if I'm personally going to do the hike anymore, which would bum me out. But, um, I also think it's obviously more important for, you know, the fair Jessica to do it and for my daughter to do it and for the other, you know, actual descendants of my father-in-law to who are coming to do it. Uh, but anyway, I'm looking forward to that trip and then I'm going to be in London looking forward to that. Um, love London. And, uh, anyway, I'll be telling you about more of that stuff or not in the next 10 days, but we're going to try to put a bunch of shows in the can. I got to record a glop. I'm doing Kara Swisher's podcast. I got, um, I got a new, I got a, my first temporary crown, yesterday and i got it right before i leave i got to get a permanent one um because it's all part of this getting myself back together kind of thing and uh so anyway it's a, it's a it's a really really busy time but i don't want to like just hand the thing over to substitute hosts for two weeks or anything like that and maybe i'll record some of it from europe and uh but if you have ideas for guests who are not immediately tied to the news you know that you can record, put in the can. And if it sits for four or five days or even a week, it doesn't, uh, it's shelf life doesn't deteriorate. Come, you know, say, let it, let me know something in the comments. Um, send guy an email, um, guys email, by the way, cause I have no reason for you guys not to have it. I mean, he might be annoyed. I'll, I won't give you his personal Gmail one, but his AI email is guy.denton. That's D-E-N-T-O-N at AI.org. So guy.denton at AI.org. If you have show recommendations or any of that kind of stuff, um, or if you want to invite them to a, a kiss-themed kiss Dungeons & Dragon party or anything like that, um, that's what you got to do. 
And um, please subscribe to the dispatch if you can. It really makes just an enormous difference. You know, we're doing pretty well, but uh, we really wanted to be doing better. And we have so many things that we want to do. And, um, and everything gets easier and better um, with more paid subscribers. It just does. We think we're, we're real value. Um, if you can recommend us to people, um, you know, gift subscriptions, anything like that, um, it really does make a difference and it is really, really appreciated. And one of the things you get to do is you get to actually, um, you know, hang out in the comments and you get hear about the meetups and all that kind of thing too. So anyway, uh, I'm now just procrastinating cause I, I don't want to deal with not knowing what the G file is going to be about, but I'll figure that out and I'll talk to you next time. Yeah.